setting fire to the stoner stereotype, sparking up candid conversations with cannabis researchers, entrepreneurs, and advocates. Educator, author, and advocate Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Please welcome the host of Burning Issues, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Hey, welcome back to Burning Issues, where we burn away the cannabis myths with science. As many of you know, I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, professor of psychology at the University of Albany, author of the Oxford University Press book, Understanding Marijuana, and High Times columnist. Today, we'll chat with philosophy legend Dr. Rob Lovering and have our usual segment on self-compassion and the art of activism. A quick word of thanks to folks who've sent postcards to the psychology department at SUNY Albany. The one with the big five-leafer on it was a big hit with the support staff, so thanks so much. If you need to email me, I'm at 420research at gmail.com. That's 420research at gmail.com. Today, I'm overwhelmed to have Dr. Rob Lovering from the College of Staten Island, City University of New York. Rob got his Ph.D. in philosophy at none other than the University of Colorado at Boulder. His new book is out, and it is a masterpiece. It's called A Moral Defense of Recreational Drug Use. All I can say is this is one of the most accessible, thoughtful, delightful additions to the war on the war on drugs that I've seen in years. Rob, welcome to Burning Issues. Thanks for having me. So I got to come clean. My best friend is a logician, and we make fun of ethics all the time. And yet this book still really turned my head around. The title alone, A Moral Defense of Recreational Drug Use, must have raised some eyebrows. Can you tell our listeners what inspired this book? Sure. Well, a lot of things did. I mean, first, like most Americans, I've used drugs recreationally. And it's long seemed to me that, at least in and of itself, my doing so has not been wrong. And, and I say most other people deliberately. I mean, a drug, of course, the concept of drug covers not only what we commonly think of as drugs, the illegal drugs, but also legally used drugs such as alcohol, nicotine, caffeine. And in the United States, more than 135 million individuals, 12 and up, claim to be current users of alcohol. Dude, I'm so, on caffeine right now. <laughs> yeah, so am I. <laughs> Second, and relatedly, it seems to me that many people have uninformed, if not just downright inconsistent beliefs with regard to the morality of recreational drug use. And this is indicated by the fact that they morally condemn marijuana use on harm-based grounds, for example, but fail to do the same with regard to drugs that are much more harmful, such as alcohol. Another reason, of course, is that one of the most popular arguments for criminalizing the recreational use of certain drugs is morality-based. And if recreational drug use, at least recreational use of these drugs, is not, in fact, immoral, then the moral argument for criminalizing recreational drug use is undermined. So I have quite a few reasons for having written the book, or at least with regard to what inspired the book. One of the big things that I used to always get is that whole, it's not natural to use drugs. And Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about the non-human primates and their use of intoxicating substances? Yes. Well, there there have been lots of studies about non-human animals using drugs recreationally. The one that I was actually most struck by has to do with probably the most intelligent non-human animal that we know of, which is the dolphin. And the dolphin recently, or dolphins, plural, recently have been observed to carefully manipulating a certain puffer fish, which when so manipulated, when so provoked, it releases a certain nerve toxin. And 
the nerve toxin, at least in small doses, produces a narcotic effect. And so these documentarians, film documentarians who witnessed this, they watched these dolphins carefully chewing on this puffer fish. And this is the part that I like the best. They were passing it around between one another. <laughs> right? Passing it to the left, presumably, but they're passing it around between each other, and after which they entered into a, what is, apparently was a trance-like state. Now, this is one of the most intelligent, if not the most intelligent, non-human animal that we know of. I mean, so much so that even scientists, not even trained ethicists, scientists are calling for recognizing them as persons, as ethical persons. And we have at least witnessed them seemingly using drugs in the form of a nerve toxin recreationally. I got to admit, I don't think I'm eager to try that one, but it's <laughs> undermine that, that argument some. I spend yeah. so much time jumping up and down about the limited harms of cannabis use, and you actually make an interesting argument about how a drug might still be moral even if it does cause harm to a person. Can you walk us through that in kind of baby steps? Sure. I mean, simply put harming oneself well let's talk about harm to the user himself or herself first and foremost harming oneself is not one and the same as wronging oneself so from the mere fact that an activity involves harming oneself it doesn't follow that the activity is thereby morally wrong and there seem to be conditions under which harming oneself even one's health does not involve wrongdoing such as when the harm is done with one's voluntary informed consent i mean you consider people for example who eat highly unhealthy food and refuse to exercise I mean, for those who do so with voluntary informed consent, they're eating highly unhealthy food and refusal to exercise, at least in and of themselves, do not seem to be wrong. It what might a be yeah. <laughs> You know, it might be imprudent, of course, but we can't conflate prudence with morality. Some philosophers have done that historically, but it's, there's certainly a large percentage, if not the majority of philosophers, distinguish the two. So it might be imprudent to eat highly unhealthy food and not exercise, but it doesn't seem to be wrong. So the bottom line is, just because one is harming oneself, it doesn't fall from that that one's thereby wronging oneself. And then I know you could kind of go to the other side here and even extend this to the chance that you might harm others after doing a drug. Can you sort of extend it to that? Sure. I mean, a similar point can be made with regard to harm to oneself, and that is that harming another once again, is not one and the same as wronging another's. So again, for the mere fact that an activity involves harming another, it doesn't follow that it's wrong. Consider football players. I mean, their sport of choice involves regularly harming each other. But so long as the parties involved give their voluntary informed consent to being so harmed, they do not thereby commit any wrongdoing. And so it is with you know, other sports, other activities, such as boxing, mixed martial arts, ice hockey, etc., so long as the individuals have provided voluntary informed consent, though they may be harming each other, they're not thereby wronging each other. And so it is with recreational drug use. But I, I would add this, that just as we shouldn't conflate the act of driving a car, for example, with the act of harming another while driving a car, so we shouldn't conflate the act of using drugs recreationally with the act of harming another while using drugs recreationally. So even if the latter is, in some cases, wrong, harming another while using drugs recreationally, that wouldn't entail that merely using drugs recreationally is wrong as well. So let me see if I've got it. Essentially, even if using a drug might increase my chance of harming someone, using the drug itself 
isn't necessarily wrong because I may not. I think it has to do with the degree of chance. So if there were a drug that more or less ensured that you're going to harm somebody, then it seems to me that one could make a strong case that using that drug, at least while there are other people around to be so harmed, may be immoral. But if the chance is below a certain threshold, and where that threshold is to be, to be found is up for debate. But the bottom line is, if the chance is below a certain threshold, then it seems to me that all else being equal, it's morally permissible to use such a drug. No, I think I follow, but could you, could you unpack that a little more, by all means? Well, I mean, at some level, virtually every act involves a chance of harm. I mean, the, the, the moment you walk outside your door, right, you've increased the probability, at least minimally, of harming someone else. After all, you've placed yourself in the presence of other people or other things that have moral standing. And if so doing, let's suppose, just hypothetically, guaranteed that you were going to harm someone without his or her voluntary informed consent, well, then there would be a moral problem with leaving your house. But the reason we don't think it's morally problematic, at least in part, is that the chance is fairly slim that that's going to happen, all else being equal. So it is, it seems to me, with recreational drug use, at least within certain contexts. So when I'm at home drinking beer and watching a movie, and that's it, the probability of my harming someone against his or her will is quite low. So when you talk about even if there's a chance, I think we have to specify, well, what kind of chance are we talking about? What degree of chance are we talking about? If it's, um, if it's all but certain, that's a problem. If it's not very likely, then it seems to me that all else being equal, it's not wrong. I'm totally with you. Hey, as my brother Vivian McPeak would say, we've got to pause for the cause because there are flaws in the laws. But we'll be <laughs> right back with more so- from philosopher Rob Lovering. So stay with me. More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. MJWellness.com, the largest medical marijuana community in the world. Connect with thousands of patients, doctors, industry leaders, and businesses through shared personal experiences along our worldwide network. Discover new therapies and benefits with content tailored to you. Come grow your network on mjwellness.com. You're not alone. Your wellness matters. Learn, live, and thrive. Check out mjwellness.com today. From high atop Mount Soldad in San Diego, California, 100 feet above sea level. Good morning. It's good news with cannabis nurse Heather. This plant is amazing. Positive change is happening. We did it. No matter who you are, you can make a positive impact on the world. I would rather be illegally alive than legally dead. And that quote helped to give you strength. Nurse Heather is only on CannabisRadio.com. Good morning, Cannabis Nurse Heather. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues only on CannabisRadio.com. Hey, welcome back to Burning Issues. We're here with philosopher Rob Lovering talking about a moral argument for recreational drug use. We were just talking about 
uh, links between harms and moral arguments. I got a huge kick out of your section in the book on religious arguments, and I think they dovetail nicely with your previous book on deities and things like that. I know you could spend a, an hour and a half on this idea with no problem, but could you sort of give us, in a nutshell, the religious arguments against drug use and how you might see them as not necessarily so harming? Well, the foremost problem with religious arguments for the immorality of really any act, recreational drug use or any other act, as I see it at any rate, is that they're only as good as the religious claims upon which they depend. So if the religious claims upon which they depend are false or unfounded, then the moral claim derived from them is left unjustified. So, for example, if someone believes that recreational drug use is wrong because they believe that God has warned us of the harmfulness of recreational drug use, and if we don't have good reason to believe that God exists or that he has, in fact, warned us of the harmfulness of recreational drug use, then at least to that extent, we don't have good reason to believe that recreational drug use is wrong. And so religious arguments, whether they're any good or not, fundamentally comes down to whether the, we have reason to believe the religious claims that they depend on. And if the history of philosophy of religion is any indication, determining whether such religious claims are true is likely to be extraordinarily difficult. This is a tough one for me because my dad thinks anyone who's done mushrooms and doesn't believe in God must be a hypocrite. So oh, really? <laughs> I, may, I may have to leave this one alone, but I just wanted to let you know I really relish that and I'm actually looking forward to reading your other book on some of this. When we get back to sort of the non-religious but harm-related arguments, you, you mentioned the situation in Portugal and I had hoped you could sort of summarize that arrangement for our listeners. Well, in 2001, uh, Portugal decriminalized, which isn't to say that it legalized, it just decriminalized possession of 10 days' worth of use of drugs such as marijuana, cocaine, and heroin. Now, I don't know how they figure out what 10 days' worth of use of drugs is, but in any case, they did criminalize possession of 10 days' worth of use of drugs such as marijuana, cocaine, and heroin. And at least according to one study that was published nearly 10 years later, the decriminalization did not lead to major increases in drug use. Indeed, evidence indicates that reductions in problematic use in drug-related harms and criminal justice overcrowding. So Portugal serves as a nice touchstone at any rate for us to at least predict is too strong of a word, for us to get a sense of if we were to decriminalize possession of such drugs here, what we might expect from that. I mean, this is just one case study, which is a different culture, and all, there are all kinds of variables at work here. But we can point to Portugal and say, look, all of the scaremongering, the fear-mongering, I should say, that we hear from critics of the legalization efforts, at least the evidence that we've gathered from Portugal indicates that we don't have a lot to fear. Well, what's funny is that I, I feel like, in a sense, you can say that Portugal's move is a moral one. Yes. Certainly, one can make a moral argument in favor of the Portugal situation. I mean, there are at least two ways in which one could do that. One could offer what you might call a rights-based argument. And with rights-based arguments, the idea is that you know citizens have a moral right to do what they want to their own bodies, so long as they're doing so does not violate the rights of others. Another way you could do it is you could offer what you might call a consequence-based argument, according to which the overall consequences of such decriminalization are better than the overall consequences of criminalization. And then beyond that, you, of course, they're not mutually exclusive, and so you could offer both. You could offer both a rights-based argument as well as a consequence-based argument. That seems to me probably the strongest way to go. 
I really like that. It's interesting, too, because you have another really compelling section on how our perceptions of morality are really wrapped up with our attitudes about pleasure. Can you elaborate right. on that a little bit? Yeah, so in one chapter in the book, I do spend a lot of time talking about arguments against recreational drug use that focus on the pleasure. And, you know, some people, at least for some people, and that an activity involves pleasure is reason to be minimally morally suspicious of it. So I quote a scholar named D.C.A. Hillman, who puts it this way, and I think it's a good way to put it. He says, drugs are looked upon as a vehicle of pleasure, and that they are forces us to consider their morality or immorality. I find it interesting that D.C.A. Hillman uses language forces us to. I mean, bespeaks a cultural suspicion of activities that involve pleasure. I mean, one wonders why exactly does it force us to consider their morality or immorality. But in any case, some people view pleasure as an undignified goal. Some people allow that it is dignified, or at least not undignified, but argue that it must be earned and so on. But what I argue in my book, at any rate, is that in any case, it seems false. Either that pleasure is unearned or an undignified goal or what have you, or that it's being so renders pleasurable activity wrong. You know, I'm partial to it because you quoted me in this section, too, because yeah. yes. we're definitely on the exact same page. What is the deal about pleasure having to be earned? Where do you think this comes from? That's a very good question. And I don't go into that in the book. And I, I, I would only be speculating in terms of where it comes from. I can't help but think at some level that it comes from certain religious traditions. It might come from certain societal systems wherein there is more emphasis rather than on the individual than on the community that you had to pay your dues, you might say, before you can go off and do something fun for yourself. But all that to say, on my side of things, it's pure speculation. I'm not sure where it comes from. I'm more concerned with, at least for my purposes in the book, that this is an argument, and the question is whether it, in fact, establishes that recreational drug use is immoral, and it seems to me that it doesn't. I completely follow. You know, you also get into some great points about arguments related to addiction. And do you feel like we can make a moral argument that drug use could be okay, even if it created dependence? I think we can. Regarding drug addiction, perhaps the most fundamental moral issue is whether it is wrong to diminish one's autonomy. And there are various senses of autonomy, but one of the senses that I work with in the book is the capacity to govern oneself. And it seems to me, at least at times, that it's morally permissible to diminish one's autonomy. And one of the examples I use is I say, take someone who's having trouble sleeping and decides to take a sleeping pill. In doing so, the individual chooses a course of action that will result in at least a temporary diminishing of his capacity just to govern himself. That's assuming the pill works, of course. But does he do something morally wrong? It seems to me that he doesn't. Moreover, I mean, when we talk about diminishing one's capacity, at least with regard to drug addiction, it's typically diminishing one's capacity with respect to the drug itself, the drug to which the addict is addicted. It's not his capacity or her capacity to govern himself or herself with respect to all courses of action. So there's actually a, an important disanalogy between the sleeping pill case and the drug addiction case. With the sleeping pill case, the person has at least temporarily blocked his capacity to govern himself completely with respect to all courses of action, such as going to work, paying his bills, etc. While in the case of drug addiction, the individual temporarily blocks his or her capacity to govern himself or herself with regard to use of the drug to which he or she's addicted, but not necessarily with respect to all courses of action. And I would add that that's not simply a point of logic. That's actually an empirical fact that, by and large, drug addicts 
lead relatively normal lives. So it's not simply a philosophical logic chopping point, which I do some of in the book. This is actually established as empirical fact. Oh, no, I have those data. Definitely uh, many a drug addict gets through a day of work without any problem. You know, what I love more than anything is just that I feel like the prohibitionists have grabbed this moral idea and just said it's immoral to use drugs, period, and that's my argument. And you've really pulled pulled this out from under there. If somebody's caught in an argument like this, is there a quick sort of 90-second version that you feel like we could use to dispute somebody who says the moral argument's on my side? Well, one of the first things I would do is I would ask them, well, what's the argument? One thing that we have done culturally, it seems to me, is we've allowed prohibitionists to simply declare that recreational drug use is wrong without contesting the claims. And so one of the things I would do, if I were to sit down with a Bill Bennett, for example, who is notorious for declaring over and over and over that recreational drug use is wrong, I'd say, well, what's the argument? I think culturally at some level we're not accustomed to doing that. We just say, oh, well, if we defer to who we deem the expert and say that's that, I would ask what's the argument, I would listen to the argument, and then I would critically evaluate it. That's precisely what I've done, of course, in my book, and it seems to me that most of the arguments do not succeed. I do grant that there are some arguments that are successful, but the conditions under which they're successful are so remote that, for all intents and purposes, they fail to establish that recreational drug use is wrong. Well, man, I can't thank you enough. Again, the book is called A Moral Defense of Recreational Drug Use. We've been talking to Dr. Rob Lovering. It's just been a great time. We'll be back again after some messages. Stay with us on Burning Issues. More Burning Issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Your connection to quality cannabis insurance services is spelled K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R. That's Karcher Insurance. We have worked with ventures like cannabis for over 60 years. We're proud to represent over 50 companies with tailor-made cannabis business plans for owners just like you to insure your product, your plants, and your pursuits. K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R spells out their full-service insurance services, ranging from commercial to bonds, to personal, from life to health, and more. Contact the team at karcherinsurance.com and let our experience work for you. That's K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R insurance.com. Contact Karen and the team at Karcher Insurance at 1-844-421-3560. That's 844-421-3560. Dr. Dabber, hurry, it's is shooting past a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber, doctor's orders. Less heat, <laughs> more flavor. Growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling, trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is The Grow Show, and I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to resource. Welcome my guest, Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you, right now I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor, or are you smoking sun-grown? What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate. <laughs> Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the, the king, right? You just have you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all set, right? Mm, I wish that were the case. 
The Grow Show with Kyle Cushman, only on CannabisRadio.com. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. Hey, welcome back to Burning Issues. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine with our next chapter of Self-Compassion in the Art of Activism. Here's the part of our show that encourages all our listeners to take good care of themselves, each other, and support the Cannabis Crusade. Today, we're going to focus on humor. My book, Humor 101, just got a second printing, so thanks to everybody who bought it, and feel free to pick it up if you like these ideas. As you'd guess, comedy can improve well-being. I'd love to make this segment a laugh a minute, but it's actually a very serious topic. Obviously, some types of humor help, but other kinds can hurt. Jokes that bring people together or help identify what we all share, those are the best. Think of these as affiliative jokes. And experiments show that a little affiliative comedy really lifts your mood. Regular use of the clown troupe or, you know, just a funny flick, that can go a long way, even in the psychiatry ward. And that can be a big plus for those of us who haven't checked into the hospital yet. If you finish listening and go find some funny stand-up on YouTube, I feel like I've done my job. And that's really my message here. Jokes might also encourage mindful moments. In a sense, getting a punchline puts you right in the present moment. The experience of a joke can parallel the sort of thinking that a therapist might want to teach to a client. Jokes frequently question a tacit assumption underlying some of the silly things that we all do. Most jokes serve as examples of seeing a topic in two different ways, and that's really the key to turning annoyances into humor or sad things into not-so-sad ones. The funniest jokes invariably lead us to question assumptions. A punchline often surprises us with the news that we've assumed something that wasn't correct. And when we realize the mistake, we laugh, perhaps because we've questioned the original assumption. So my pal Emo Phillips says, My grandfather died peacefully in his sleep, but the kids on his bus were screaming. You can see the setup creates a certain assumption, but it's violated by the thought of some old dude falling asleep while driving a school bus. That's part of what makes it funny, and spending time watching our own minds work is a great way to learn about ourselves. So a 10-minute clip of humor can often make the difference between a bad mood and a good one. We constantly ask folks to question assumptions when we're trying to get them to see our side of this political argument. But if you want some classic examples, see Richard Pryor's work on racism in Live on Sunset Strip. Or check out Sam Kennison's recommendations about relationships in Breaking the Rules. The questioning of assumptions is often the key behind modern cognitive therapies, too. There are assumptions that we all make that we may have failed to recognize, and sometimes they're the ones that make us miserable. So a humor-based therapy builds on this idea of questioning assumptions. It pushes a client's concerns to the extreme until it's sort of obvious what's what. One of them, basically, they took this schizophrenic patient who was really angry all the time because she thought other patients were stealing her things. She resented the idea that this wasn't right. So they made these elaborate lists of all the missing items, and it turned out they weren't worth more than four bucks. The client realized that these weren't worth the rage, and she eventually was able to laugh about the whole thing. Often, this is how we get to see that life is funny. 
How many times are we upset about stuff that isn't even worth four bucks? Often, the way to see that life is funny is to be in the moment right now. And now. And now. (laughs) And then you sort of see there's no joke to tell and no joke to miss, but there's something funny about being us. Things are funny in the present in part because that's the only moment that there is. And if the present moment really isn't funny, the fact that it isn't funny just might be humorous on its own. So any moment that we spend recognizing humor, that's a moment well spent. And it has a great chance to be a happy one. Comedy can give us the optimism to know that there's always another laugh right around the corner. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Burning Issues. My continued gratitude to production wizard Brasco and his whole team. And special thanks to today's guest, Rob Lovering. Please join us again next week. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine at CannabisRadio.com. Follow your heart and let the data be your guide. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.